Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to discuss Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 17. The subject is the Samaritans receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Our context is Acts chapter 7 in which Stephen was tried before the Sanhedrin and he was stoned to death. This was probably several years after Pentecost, not too long after Pentecost. We start now in Acts 8, chapter 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. That's talking about the future apostle Paul. He was called Saul at this time. He agreed with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. That verse actually is the NIV Study Bible has it at the end of the previous chapter. might have been a better division. But at any rate, Saul agreed with putting him to death, and this sets the stage for the severe persecution that broke out against the church. On that day, the day that Stephen was executed, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now notice that Saul, later Paul, agreed with putting Saul to death, putting Stephen to death. We see this in Acts 22:20 20, when Paul is explaining, giving his testimony, if you will. I think it was to the mob in the Jewish mob there at the temple. He said, "When the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving." And guarded the clothes of those who killed him. So Paul owned up to the fact that he was perfectly happy with seeing a perfectly innocent godly man executed. Which really shows the amazing conversion of Paul. That he now preaches the Jesus that he now stoned people for. Jameson, Foss, and Brown say that when Paul agreed, that word agreed in English, in the Greek, more properly translated, expresses hearty approval. So Saul heartily approved with putting Stephen to death. Now the persecution broke out, and a lot of people scattered, but it says all except the apostles were scattered. Why did the apostles stay in Jerusalem? NIV Study Bible speculates. They could have been an encouragement to those who were in prison there in Jerusalem. They could have been a center appeal of appeal for those who were scattered. In other words, we're going to maintain the church here in the midst of the persecution. If, if When you come back, we'll still be here, which, as a matter of fact, some of them did start coming back. And when it says all were scattered, that word all can mean absolutely every last one, or many times it could just mean many, a lot. And this is easy to prove with a lexicon. It, you, there's a lot of false theology based on a strictly literal interpretation of the word all, but there were some people that were left behind. As proof of this, John Gill points out that devout men carried Stephen to his grave in Jerusalem. Well, if all the apostles, all the people were gone except the apostles, that would mean that the apostles buried Stephen. Well, that could be, but still, it says devout men. It, Luke would have said the apostles buried Stephen if it was the apostles that did it. So you see there's still some men left behind there, some Christians left behind in Jerusalem, and we also see in verse 3, we see that in Acts, in verse 2, devout men bearing Stephen, and then in the next verse, in Acts 8, 3, we see that the church was made havoc of by Saul as he went around jerking men and women out of their homes and judicially murdering them. So, there were some still people there. John Gill restricts the all there, all were scattered. He says it means all who were preachers of the word were scattered, Relying on verse 4, which says, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of the good news. Of good news. I don't think so. I don't think that's what I think he just means. A lot of, not a lot of them were scattered, but some apostles were left behind. And we also know that there was a few godly men left behind also. Now, I mentioned the fact that it's incredible that Saul could enjoy 
killing Christians so much that he got saved. This is surely an example of amazing grace. Here's a good quote from Adam Clark. So inveterate was the hatred that this man bore to Christ and his followers that he delighted in their destruction. So blind was his heart with superstitious, superstitious zeal that he thought he did God's service by offering him the blood of a fellow creature whose crude he supposed to be erroneous. Now, Luke tells us here in verse 1 that all except the apostles were scattered through the land of Judea, that's around Jerusalem, the tribe around Jerusalem in Samaria, which is right north of Jerusalem, the area right north of Jerusalem, they were scattered. This was actually in obedience to Jesus' command. Matthew 10:23. When they persecute you in one town, escape to another. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Son of Man being Jesus and comes means coming in judgment to destroy the temple in AD 70. And by the way, this is a good proof text here that shows that comes does not always mean coming at the end of the world because obviously it doesn't make any sense. You will not have covered the towns of Israel before the second coming. That's meaningless. He's talking about you're out there preaching the gospel, working on Israel, and it's going to take about, you know, 40 years later, the Son of Man is going to come and judge this place. So you won't even have gotten finished evangelizing Israel before I'm going to come back. But this scattering is proof of the providence of God in helping the gospel to spread. Because in addition to the pilgrims at Pentecost who returned to their homes all over the Roman Empire spreading the gospel, now we have Christians from Jerusalem going out spreading the gospel. Now we'll see that many of these scattered apostles soon return, or many of them returned after the scattering. This is according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who cites Acts 9:26 through 30 in support of that proposition. Verse 26 in Acts 9, when he arrived in Jerusalem, this is Paul, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had been the Lord on the, seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews but they attempted to kill him. All right, now Paul's down there evangelizing in verse 30. It says, when the brothers found out that he was about to get killed, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Well, who were those brothers? Well, you could always say it was only the apostles, but I don't think so. I think it was other believers. Jameson Fawcett Brown believes that other Christians had come back during that time. And again, this is speculation. We don't know, but there's an indication that brothers there means not just the apostles, but there was a church there in Jerusalem in the midst of the persecution. And by the way, this church in Jerusalem was the first church, not the church in Rome, as Adam Clark, anti-papist that he is, points out. The church in Jerusalem was the first church, not the church in Rome. Acts chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. That Verb ravaging the home is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The NIV has destroying. It was bad. It was real bad. The NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark say that the Greek sometimes describes the ravages of wild animals. In other words, Saul was tearing the church, church apart the way a lion tears a zebra apart. He would enter house after house, personal, into a man's home as his castle, as they say. But it doesn't matter. He went in there and dragged off not only the men, but the women, too put him in prison, didn't even have any sympathy for the fairer sex, put him in prison. So while Saul's doing that, the 
there were Christians, devout men that were still in Jerusalem. They're burying Stephen. Where? Probably in the sepulcher of his, of his fathers, John Gill says, to give him an honorable burial, which would be contrary to Jewish law because the Jewish law, as Gill and Clark point out, they had a special place for those who were stoned or burnt and another special place for those who were strangled or killed with a sword. In other words, for murderers and criminals and thieves. So these people probably got his body and they did this without the sanction of the Sanhedrin. Notice that these devout brothers mourned deeply over Stephen. Now, they had just seen or heard of Stephen's glorious exit to heaven when he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And he said, Lord Jesus, into my hands I, com I commit my spirit. They saw that. They knew he'd gone to heaven, but they still were grieved and mourning deeply because they had natural human feelings. I'm telling you, death is a terrible thing. I know you have probably had a loved one die. I have, and I'm telling you, it's terrible. There's just no other way about it. And I used to think, well, it's so terrible. Why did Paul say death has no sting? It's stinging me, stinging all those people crying at all the funerals that you see. Well, I'm talking about even Christian funerals. Well, it's because Paul was talking about the final resurrection when death has no sting, when we are finally resurrected and death is totally conquered in the believer. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm convinced that's what he meant. It's not talking about right now. So here these people are mourning Stephen. Now, was it a public mourning or a private mourning? If it was a public mourning, that would be against Jewish law, which forbade mourning over executed criminals. Adam Clark says that it was actually public and that this proves that Stephen was killed by a lynch mob and not by the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin never formally condemned Stephen. Well, but of course you could say, well, okay, say that's true, but they didn't interfere with the lynch mob, did they? They did it, whether formally or informally, whether it was a lynch mob or not, it doesn't matter, they killed him. But, and they apparently didn't stop Stephen's honorable bearable after the emotion of the moment passed. Although we don't know that. That's speculation, too. He could have been thrown into a common criminal's uh, grave. So while devout men are bearing Stephen, Paul is persecuting, or Saul was persecuting people. Look at all the times that Paul mentions in his writings that he had persecuted Christians badly. I've got them collected here, six of them. Six scriptures. Acts 22.4, which is at the end of this book, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, the Christian way, to the death, to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail. Now here's evidence that Paul actually had Christians killed. Of course, he had it done judicially. He would get them in jail. And later on, we'll see here. Let's read here in verse Acts 26, verse 10. I actually did this in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had, had received a authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he was part of the judicial tribunal that killed and executed innocent Christians. And folks, judicial murder is worse than ordinary murder because now you're perverting the organs of the state which are designed to protect innocent people, not to murder them. Paul was a real work of art before he got saved. That's why his conversion, his conversion is so astounding. 1 Corinthians 15:9 Paul says for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He still feels bad about it it sounds like. He says, well, you know, they got all these other apostles but they didn't persecute the church. I'm the only one that did that. Galatians 1:13 for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. Extreme persecution to the death persecution. Philippians 3.6, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. 1 Timothy 1.13, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. 
So this arrogant persecutor of the church becomes a humble man, stripped of all of his his academic honors and his judicial authority, going around as a itinerant poor man preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an incredible conversion that man had. Sometimes I wonder if he wasn't scarred by what he had done. I know Jesus forgives us all, and but he talked about it. But I, you know, I've never done stuff like. I mean, I'm embarrassed about the things I've done. I can't talk about it, and they're not nearly as bad as what Paul did. But he talked about it, and I guess it's good that he did because he shows us what God's grace can do. How he can take a murderer and turn him around and make him the number one apostle in the history of the Christian church, spreading the gospel all over the place. When Paul wrote about grace, he really knew what he was talking about. Notice that Paul, I think I mentioned this, when he arrested people and dragged them out of their houses, he didn't spare the fairer sex. He took the women too. No mercy. We go to verse 4. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. So those who left Jerusalem, they didn't let the persecution scare them or stop them. They went right on preaching the message of the good news. Notice that evil men meant their persecution for evil. But God turned it to good. Adam Clark says this, Thus the very means devised by Satan to destroy the church became the very instruments of its diffusion and establishment. Here's another example of Romans 8:28, how God takes evil people's actions and turns them to the good for the church. Philippians 1, 12-13. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. What happened to Paul was he got arrested. He's in Rome. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. So even though he went to jail, the gospel kept right on spreading. Now we see here, we're in Acts 8. By the time we get to Acts 11, we will see the results of this scattering, the results in church growth. Verse, excuse me for using that word. I, I, it's been abused horribly in the 20th, 21st century by Christians. This is real Holy Spirit church growth. Acts 11:19 through 20, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution, that's those that we just read about here in Acts 8, those who had been scattered because of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, which is present-day Lebanon, right north on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Cyprus, go a little bit east into the Mediterranean Sea, and there's that, that island that looks like a horseshoe crab. That's where Barnabas and Mark were from. Barnabas was, I should say, at least. And then Antioch, that's... That Syrian Antioch, which is back on the coast, right a little bit further north of Phoenicia, right there on the Mediterranean coast, right before it bends to the west and becomes presently Turkey, right up there in Antioch of Syria. So we're talking about in the immediate environs of Jerusalem, but outside of Israel, the gospel is spread. And these people that were scattered were speaking the message to no one, except Jews. They were still doing Jews. They hadn't got to the idea of preaching to Gentiles yet. Ah, but look what happens here in verse 20. But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Somehow the message got down to Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, right in present-day Libya, and Cypriot, and Cyprus, which is the island I just told you about, right off of the Mediterranean coast there, off the coast of Phoenicia and, and uh, Syria, south of present-day Turkey, right there in the island there right to the east of Crete, uh, these people had got the message. And I suspect it was from people re returning from the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They had spread the word. And now these are Gentiles. And they went to Antioch and sp 
began speaking to Hellenistic Jews. So now you've got a reversal of the normal pattern. The, the message is coming from Gentiles back to Jews, which is a man die, bites dog situation. But anyway, we see the growth of the church because of the persecution. Now, the evangelism from Cyprus and Kyrene wasn't because of persecution, but, but verse 19, it says, those who were scattered as a result of persecution went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So the message is beginning to spread to Gentile areas, even though they're speaking only to Jews. It took a while for them to get in their heads, hey, the God message is universal. It's not just for the Jews. Jameson, Faust, and Brown points, point out that the Christians probably would have stayed in Jerusalem, but for the persecution. And I agree with that. They had a hard time of shaking that mentality. The Gentiles are dogs. They don't deserve the kingdom. Acts 8, 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. This is, fits in with the theme of spreading, moving out from Jerusalem. Remember the kind of a literary framework for all this is Acts 1, 8, and they go from uh, the gospel. The, let's say, you will be my messengers from Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, we've just now left Jerusalem and we're up in Samaria. It doesn't say what city in Samaria, but Samaria is the region just north of Jerusalem. And of course, it was the area with all the half-breed religious apostates only believed in the Pentateuch. They had on their own temple up there near Mount Ebal or Gerizim. I forgot which one up there. And they hated the Jews and the Jews hated them. Now, they might have been prepared a little bit because, remember, Jesus himself preached the gospel to the Samaritan woman, and she brought these city fathers, I guess you would call them, these Samaritan men to Jesus and said, listen to this guy. He knows everything I did. And so the gospel had some seeds had been planted there in Samaria, and Philip went down to Samaria. That means down because Jerusalem's up in a hill, and so everywhere you go from Jerusalem, it's down. Went down to this some city in Samaria and preached the Messiah. Now, who is this Philip? Most people seem to think he was one of the seven chosen in the Jerusalem church to wait on tables, which we read about in Acts 8, 6, 5. The proposal pleased the whole company to appoint people to take care of the fair distribution of food to the Hellenistic Jews. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So he he was more than just a table waiter. He was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And we see this here. Excuse me, not Stephen. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm sorry. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. So he was number two there. Now, some people say it's the Apostle Philip. The Apostle Philip was the apostle that introduced Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, to Jesus, the one that was from Bethsaida, the one that Jesus tested, asking Philip to feed the 5,000. But I don't know why. Most people think it's Philip, the so-called deacon in Acts 7. Here's one reason given why it was not Philip the Apostle, because the apostles had remained in Jerusalem during the persecution, and now you've got Philip going up to Samaria, leaving the Jerusalem during the persecution, which would seem to contradict that verse we just read that said the apostles stayed. Well, the problem with that is John and Peter were, who eventually went up to Samaria. They were apostles. They didn't stay there. Another argument is made that an apostle would not have needed another apostle to come up and confirm his work, because Peter and John came up to confirm the work of Philip. Well, well, frankly, I think that's quite a stretch because there was so much evangelism going on. There were such few apostles. There's no way in the world apostles could confirm every outbreak of the Holy Spirit going on, on all over Levant and Cyprus and Kyrene and Antioch or wherever. No, I don't believe that. This, you know, there's reminds me of Presbyterians that think the only people who can preach the Word of God is somebody that's got a four-year seminary degree. I mean, come on. That's not going to happen. 
this that's I mean I not that I think it's bad that people get four year seminary degrees. They come up with all kind of interesting stuff in these seminaries, but let's face it, if it wasn't for the barefoot evangelist of this world, the gospel wouldn't be spreading all over the world right now. Now notice that Philip went up Samaria. Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, as we learn from Acts 6. We look at the seven so-called deacons that were chosen. Every one of them had a Greek name because they wanted to choose Hellenistic Jews to, to, to fix the Hellenistic Jews' complaint about not getting enough food. And so Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, and, and the Samaritans were a mixed-race, mixed-religious people, mixed-religion people. So they're much more likely to listen to a Hellenistic Jew than a strict Hebraic Jew, as Jameson Fawcett Brown pointed out. So it makes sense that Philip was up there. All right, so we still, we, when we think of this story of Philip, we tend to focus on the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But we need to remember, to tie this into the context here, is that Philip is an example of one of these scattered people that got kicked out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. That's the theme here, is the spread of the gospel because of the persecution. Now, it says that Philip went up to a city in Samaria. Some manuscripts have the city of Samaria, which would be a reference to the old capital of Samaria, which was named Sebaste or Neapolis in Philip's time, Roman names. The modern Nablus, this is NIV Study Bible says that. Well, I don't, who cares? Somewhere up in Samaria. Acts 8, 6. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. Once again, signs are a signpost to heaven. He did the signs. They pointed the people to the the people to the kingdom, and the crowd paid attention. Signs and miracles tend to make people pay attention. They do not cr- create skepticism like cessationists love to say. Oh, see, they're they're fake. They're all fake. No, they're not. If they're not fake, a true sign will point people to Christ. A fake one will point people away from Christ. Of course, that's why the devil loves to find people who are willing to do that to bring disrepute upon the gospel. In other words, miracles are a leveraged thing. They can either produce great results or they can produce disaster. We go to verses 7 and 8 at Acts 8. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city, wherever that city was. Now, why do the, do the demons cry out with a loud voice? They often do that. We often don't think why they do it. This is a speculation. Perhaps they don't want to leave the bodies they were possessing. Or maybe they're just scared to death when they come in contact with the name, the power, and authority of Jesus. And again, we need to remember, I tell people this all the time, especially people in China where demonism is rife. The demons are scared of you. You are not scared of the demons. Do not be scared of the demons. The demons will run from you. They will scream, no, no, no. Don't mention Jesus in my name. It says many who were possessed, again, that word is demonized in the Greek. Possessed, the English word kind of gives the wrong idea, like you're a zombie going around speaking that word. I'm speaking like you were a devil, like you were a demon. All demon demonization is not like that. There are some. I've actually talked to some people who were demon. I would say they were demon-possessed because their vocal cords were taken over and they had this nasty voice, which people, and I don't know how people in the movies figure this out because it comes out pretty much like you watch The Exorcist and things like that, you know? Not that I suggest you do that, but uh, demon movies tend to show pretty good how demoniacs act, and I think it's because people have actually seen it. But anyway, I've seen I've heard them talk like that. Um, so, but it doesn't mean they all talk like that. It does show that demon demonization or demon possession was distinct from healing because you notice that many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. It 
sounds like it's something different than the demonization. This is a standard teaching, and I believe it. Adam Clark says that this shows that demon possession was distinct from healing and that demons were not a species of disease. Although demons can cause disease, but they themselves were not a disease. We go to verses 9 through 11 in Acts 8. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. In fact, later on, his name was Simon the Great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. There it is. He's called the great power of God, claiming to be somebody great, and people were giving him that honor and calling him the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his with sorcerers for a long time. Now, you notice just as the the godly God miracles, Jesus miracles, Holy Spirit miracles were causing the people to pay attention to Philip in verse 6. Likewise, here in verse 10, the demonic miracles are making people pay attention to Simon. So there's little direct mano a mano, the demons against the Holy Spirit. And those demonic miracles were making people pay attention to to Simon. So you see, miracles do draw attention. Now, this Simon was a piece of work. The NIV Study Bible says the early Christian fathers called him the, quote-unquote, arch-heretic. He's famous. I mean, he's, you read back in church history, he's, he's mentioned all the time. I think they say he finally, finally tossed him into the Tiber River in, in Rome. I read that somewhere. But let me give you a quote from Adam Clark. In ancient ecclesiastical writers, we have the strangest account of this man, they say that he pretended to be the father who gave the law to Moses, that he came in the reign of Tiberius in the person of the son, that he descended on the apostles on the day of Pentecost in flames of fire in quality of the Holy Spirit, that he was the Messiah, the paraclete, that's the Holy Spirit, and Jupiter even, oh, you got another pagan god in there, that the woman who accompanied him called Helena was Minerva, Minerva, or the first intelligent, with many other extravagancies which probably never had an existence. All that we know to be certain on this subject is that he used sorcery, that he bewitched the people, and that he gave out himself to become a great one. All right, so he, yeah, he was into demon worship pretty bad. Now, I, you read a lot of old commentators, and they constantly talk about sorcery and magic. They constantly say it's fake. They use strings and wires and hollow statues and put candles in there and probably say put a tape recorder in there i don't know they they they've got well and they were they were people that could do all this fake stuff back then i don't deny that but my goodness man these people were coming to him because he was doing demonic miracles he was doing they were astounded verse 11 says you're not really astounded over and over again by a fake miracle you got to set the fake miracle up the fake statue that's going to bleed or whatever it is it's going to do and you see it okay well there's the miracle that's going to keep you astounded? No, he was, I'm sure he was probably healing people and, and all the things that d demonists do today. I remember reading a book by John Wart Montgomery, the famous Lutheran theologian and writer, apologist. He's got a book on the supernatural about counterfeit demons and all this stuff they do, and he did research on it. And you read that book and you say, ah, oh, this demon stuff's been the same. The astral projections, the levitations, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not an expert on that, but you, but I'm telling you, it's all the same stuff, all from the from the devil, and that's who that Philip is going up against. By the way, Simon Magus, that's what he's called. Magus is, is that Magus means the magician. Simon the magician, that was his name. Actually, I'm not sure the scripture ever calls him that, but church history does. He's called Simon Magus, Simon the magician. In fact, he's the guy. As we're not going to see it in this audio, but he ended up trying to pay Peter to get the Holy Spirit, to get to the Holy Spirit, and 
Peter got mad at him and said, get behind me, you know, you're, you've got no part in this work. And that's where we get the word simony from, where people try to buy church offices by paying for them in the, the sordid church history of the Middle Ages. Simony comes after, named after this guy. Now, the fact that the people were astounded by Simon's miracles and yet switched their allegiance to Jesus because of the miracles that Philip was doing shows that the Holy Spirit miracles must have been truly stupendous to overcome the devil's miracles that astounded the people done by Simon. Now, contrast that attitude of the people toward miracles. Contrast that to the attitude of cessationists today. Here's what they say. They say, well, the devil does miracles. We can't do miracles because the devil might be counterfeiting miracles. So we don't believe in miracles. But you do believe the devil does miracles because that's you wouldn't be scared of miracles if you wouldn't be constantly be saying, well, the devil might do that miracle. So therefore, we can't do Christian miracles because because people might get that confused with the devil's miracles. Well, what's the end result of that idiotic attitude? The end result is the devil's doing miracles and Jesus isn't. Is that what we want? That's what cessationists would have you believe. Acts 8, verses 12 through 13. But when they believed Philip, that's the Samaritans, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Notice now, Samaritans are believers. And this is important when I get into some controversial theology here in a minute. They were believers now because he preached the good news about the kingdom of, God, kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and both men and women were baptized. When you believe and you're baptized by God, you're a believer. Verse 13, Then even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs of great miracles that were being formed. Now, I just finished saying, if you believe and you're baptized, you're a believer, therefore Simon must be a believer here, right? Well, some people doubt that Simon actually believed. I think they're wrong. The NIV Study Bible says it is difficult to know whether Simon's faith was genuine. Well, but Luke didn't say Simon pretended to believe, or he had a false conversion, or it was apparent that he believed. No, he said he believed and was baptized. So I believe, take, I take Luke at his word. Even Simon believed, and after he was baptized, come on. As Gordon Clark, I remember, used to say, a lot of Reformed people say, how do you know somebody's really saved? If they've made, How do you accept them into the church if they make a credible profession of faith? A credible profession of faith. Well, folks, here, Simon made a credible profession of faith, and he would be led into your church as well as mine if it happened today. So, now it is possible that he had a mere intellectual belief that Jesus had power. He says, oh, I believe in that power, and I'll go through baptism. I mean, I'll grant the possibility of that. This would mean that he did not have saving faith, but I'm telling you, it sure sounds like he had faith according to what Luke said. Here's the argument that people make against the proposition that Simon was saved in Acts 8.21. You have no part or share in this manner, or the NIV says, in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Well, there's an easy answer to that. How many saved people have you known whose heart was not right, but they were still saved? How many saved people would you easily and emphatically deny to work with you? I can think of several right off the top of my head. I won't have I won't have them in the same room with me with the silver cabinet unlocked. And they're devout Christians. Paul himself said John Mark could have no further share in his ministry. Does that mean that John Mark was not saved? I don't think so. He just didn't work well with Paul and, and didn't fly right. So in my opinion, Simon was saved. It's an academic matter. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. Gill says... John Gill says, no, he did not believe. Adam Clark says, yes, he did believe. And the NIV Study Bible says, I don't know. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, Simon had a touch of real conviction, whatever that means. But at any rate, that's a side point. The main point here is that many people were believing 
in Jesus after all these miracles that were done there was a lot of evangelism conversion regeneration and people getting baptized and that's what I want to focus on miracles lead to good things the spread of the gospel Acts 8 verse 14 when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message they sent Peter and John to them now, the NIV Study Bible says that the Jerusalem church assumed the responsibility of inspecting new evangelistic efforts, and that's why they were sent. They, John Gill says they were sent to confirm the doctrine of Philip to make sure he was preaching the right stuff. They were sent to strengthen the, the new converts by teaching them more when they got up there. Maybe Philip was a good evangelist but not a good teacher. Who knows? John Gill says that they were maybe sent up there to recognize and appoint leaders in the new church. Maybe so. That's what apostles did. But at any rate, they were used. They went up there and they worked together with Philip. Now, notice that there was a group of people at Jerusalem who sent Peter and John up, up to Samaria or down to Samaria. It was the apostles. When the apostles, not one apostle, not the Pope Peter, the apostles, decision, consensus decision making by the early apostles, consensus. There was a consensus when they chose Matthias to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. There was a consensus when they chose the seven deacons in Acts chapter nine, nine, uh, Acts chapter 6. There was a consensus in Acts chapter 15 at Jerusalem Council. And there was a consensus here when they sent Peter and John to Samaria. That was the way they did decisions back then. They didn't have one person saying, this is my way or the highway. Now, the fact that all this evangelism was going on into Samaria, that must have really impressed the apostles back there in Jerusalem. Remember, these are devout Jews who believe now. And remember, Samaria had a reputation for deviant religion. The Samaritans came about because the original Hebrew inhabitants were carried off into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C. when they were conquered by Assyria. And the Assyrians brought in people from all over the Syrian Empire, all over the ancient Near East, and put those new people in Samaria. And so they brought all their pagan idolatry with them and ended up with some screwed up religion down there. And all that was left was the Pentateuch, not the, the, the rest of the prophets. And so there was a lot of prejudice against the apostles. You know the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. You remember the story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And whenever you hear those stories, all you hear is about, ah, oh, we won't even walk through Samaria. This place stinks. We don't like Samaritans. So here they are praying together. Must have been a beautiful sight. Note that Peter and John went up there together. There was no primacy of Peter over John. Contrary to Catholic claims of Peter's supremacy, this is according to John Gill. I like these old guys in the 1800s. They were very concerned about papism. Papism, I think they called it, whatever they called it. There was no individual ruler among the apostles, as John Gill says. There wasn't even a ruler of a council of apostles. They were just apostles, and they worked together equally. Let's finish up Acts 8, verses 15 through 17. After they, that's Peter and John, went down, that means down from the high point of Jerusalem down to Samaria, down there to Samaria, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say they went specifically for the purpose of praying that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's true. But while they were there, they realized that they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. Ah, but you say, but they were saved. I just finished saying they believed and were baptized. Yes, they believed and they were baptized. But unfortunately for a lot of people, mainly non-Pentecostals, they have trouble with seeing that the Holy Spirit does more than one work. I mean, what, you've got regeneration. Well, first of all, you've got um, conviction. Well, I guess that's part of regeneration, conviction of sin, regeneration. Then you've got sanctification. Why not another 
work of the Holy Spirit called baptism in the Holy Spirit, or in this case, receiving the Holy Spirit. Why not? Well, I believe it because they were already saved, already saved, and subsequent to their salvation, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, the early Pentecostals got screwed up on this, a lot of them, and they said, no, you, you, you don't get, you're not even saved until you receive the Holy Spirit. Well, of course, that's nonsense. In fact, I have got a bunch of, well, I've got a bunch, I've got a couple of scriptures that show that Christians are regenerated by the Holy Spirit upon belief. Remember, these guys were already believed, saved, and sanctified. These Samaritans were. So I'm going to show you they already had the Holy Spirit in the sense of regeneration. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if an old-timey Pentecostal says, no, you don't have the Spirit of Christ till you receive the Holy Spirit, that would, they would have to explain, well, how in the world did the Samaritans believe? Because they believed and were baptized. So yeah, the Samaritans were, they were believed. They, they had the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, he saved us. Through the washing, excuse me, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So you get saved, you get regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and that word saved shows that you have, you've been washed by the Holy Spirit, and these Samaritans were saved. They had, they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and yet they had not received the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go to the other extreme. This is the typical evangelical cop out here. They say, well, we all have the Holy Spirit when we got saved. And they quote a certain verse, which I'll mention in a minute. We all have the Holy Spirit when you have saved. Well, how do you explain this? Well, but that's a special case. And so what they do is they, they start jumping through hoops here. In Acts 2, of course, they were believers and they received the Holy Spirit. There was a, 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 a separation of time between the regeneration and filling of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 at the original Pentecost. Likewise here in Acts 8. Likewise in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house in Caesarea Philippi. Well, excuse me, there, was, there actually wasn't subsequence there, so that one doesn't, we won't worry about that one. But Acts 19, I should have said, at Ephesus, you can clearly show there's a, a separation of time between the time the disciples were saved and the time they received the Holy Spirit. Well, how do they explain that? Well, they say, well, the Holy Spirit fell on these people at distinct times because he's trying to show a pattern going from Jerusalem to Samaria to other most parts of the earth. Jerusalem was Acts 2 in Pentecost, the original Pentecost. Then we have Acts 8, the Samaritan believers. And then we go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's in Ephesus, which is on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is getting a good ways out. Uh, and there we have another Pentecost for the Gentiles at Ephesus. That is the most contrived, artificial way of looking at the scriptures I've ever seen. For one thing, at Ephesus, how many were saved there? It says 12. Oh, we got a whole Pentecost for 12 people? I mean, the original Pentecost was over a, a ton of people in Jerusalem. And here in Acts 8, there was lots and lots and lots of people getting saved. And in, in, in Ephesus, there was 12. And how about Acts 9? They leave out Acts 9. Well, how does that fit the pattern? Paul is obviously saved, Brother Paul. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's totally humbled. He's fasting. And, and then Ananias comes and prays that he, quote, unquote, be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a special Pentecost for Paul, too. Come on, read the tea leaves, folks. This is a pattern. And if you want to believe in patterns, which I do in the book of Acts, just kind of accept what happened there in Acts as something that might be nice for you today in the 21st century. Your life would be a lot happier, and your Christian life would be a lot more vibrant, I believe. I mentioned I was trying to think of other works of the Holy Spirit that are done besides being uh, baptizing people to give them power 
for witness. There's sanctification. There's conviction of sin I mentioned. But how about glorification when we die? The Holy Spirit does that. How about illumination? Oh, I know a lot of Christians say, oh, the Holy Spirit will never illumine a Christian today. I, I call these people Christian deists. The word and the sacrament, as Mr. Riddlebarger says, that's the only way we can receive direction from God. We can't have illumination. There's a lot of other people besides Charismatics and Pentecostals are guilty of that error, according to these Christian deists. All right. To emphasize the point of subsequence, there was a time between their conversion and regeneration and receiving of the Holy Spirit. Let's look in verse 16. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, not yet, and yet they had already been baptized. So the baptism was before in time, which means they were saved, and not yet had the Holy Spirit come upon them. And then Peter and Paul laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. There is a subsequence there. It's plain as the nose on your face. All right, I mentioned I was going to mention another verse. This verse is used a lot by non-Pentecostals to say that we all got it all when we got saved. There's no subsequence for the average believer today in the 21st century. There's no difference in time between the time we were regenerated and the time we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that verse is 1 Corinthians 12:13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the argument goes like this. See there? We are all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So we all have the Holy Spirit of Christ when we become saved and are placed in the body of Christ. How can somebody be placed in the body of Christ without being saved? And if he's saved, he's obviously got the Holy Spirit. So end of story. Well, first of all, you notice that argument depends on the definition of all. And it amuses me because a lot of times Reformed people like to use this argument. And they're the ones that will be quick to point out to you that all does not always mean all without exception, each and every one. But sometimes all can mean all without distinction. In other words, God desires that all men be saved. It's referring to all Jews, all Greeks, all Mongolians, all Americans, all Australians, all groups of people, all kinds of people, male, female, slave, free, and so forth. And that, of course, is perfectly legitimate. But why won't they use that here? Because here... Paul says, in one spirit, we were all baptized in one body. And then he goes and lists some distinctions. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. We were all without distinction, not all without exception. So what Paul is talking about here is that every group of people in the world got this baptism of the Holy Spirit and were baptized in one body. Otherwise, you got a problem here because if... Paul says we're all baptized in one body. Well, how do you handle the Samaritans? They weren't baptized in one body at the time of their conversion, were they? Because they weren't baptized in the Spirit. Same thing with the Ephesians in Acts 19. Same thing with Paul in Acts 9. Same thing with the Samaritans in Acts 8. They weren't all. They weren't a member of the body of Christ. Paul wasn't trying to say that you're a, body, a member of the body of Christ when you get regenerated. He was saying that everybody, everybody, all groups of people are incorporated into, if you will, the, uh, when they drink in one spirit because the Holy Spirit is for everyone, for those who are far off, those who are near, everybody. He's not talking about individual situations. And I will point out to you that a lot of people don't even believe this. is talking about being baptized in the Spirit. It's talking about being baptized in the water. And that's, that's a good argument, too. It very well could be. You cannot use this verse to preach against subsequence, a distinction in time between regeneration and filling of the Holy Spirit that you see in four of the five Pentecostal passages in Acts. You can't do it. So non-Pentecostals don't try to do it, at least not in my presence. 
Now let's take up a little point here about the apostles going to Samaria. Why could Philip not have prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think he could have, actually. But Peter and John did it. He was helping uh, Philip out. But many people, especially these old commentators, say that only apostles could pray for others. Here's a quote from John Gill. It seems evident from this case that even the most holy deacons, though full of the Holy Ghost themselves, could not confer this heavenly gift on others. This was the prerogative of the apostles. I mean, come on. No, John. No. I've prayed for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit over and over again. And if people are open to it, and they hadn't been brainwashed by reading John MacArthur, they 95% of the time, well, all the time, I believe they receive the Holy Spirit. 95% of the time, they actually speak in tongues in addition to it. How about Ananias when he prayed for Paul's filling of the Holy Spirit? Was he an apostle? John Gill says you've got to be an apostle before you can pray for that heavenly gift. Really? Acts 9.17. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, he's a fellow believer now, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias prays for Paul to get filled with the Holy Spirit, and Ananias was not an apostle. Not that I ever heard of. All of this shows that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, does not just happen when you get saved. Oh, it's automatic. No, it's not automatic. You need to ask. Now, I will say this. There's a lot of people who not, don't have Pentecostal theology, but who do ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit with a kind of a different understanding of it. And I believe God answers that prayer, and I believe they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and some of them doing miracles. I think the third wave, th so-called third wave charismatic movement with John Wimber and all, they don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I think is absolutely preposterous. But they're going around doing miracles. Why? Because they believe they're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's lots of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. There's all kind of evangelism. How about D.L. Moody, the famous dispensationalist guy who started Moody Bible College, which is the most anti-charismatic place you could find in Christendom. And yet he himself believed in a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know anything about speaking in tongues. C.T. Studd said he never converted anybody unless he also told him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he didn't know anything about tongues either. In other words, there was some affirmative, positive action toward getting people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't just, they didn't just say, oh, you're saved, so now you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Not D.L. Moody, not C.T. Studd. Now, there you go. You don't need to have... It ain't Kenneth Copeland saying that. C.T. Studd, D.L. Moody, Adam Clark talks about this receiving of the Holy Spirit that the apostles prayed for. What was the purpose? For sanctification? No, it was not for sanctification, as Adam Clark says. Here's the quote. But for what purpose was the Holy Spirit thus given? Certainly not for the sanctification of the souls of the people. This they had on believing in Christ Jesus, and this the apostles never dispensed. And he's exactly right. They had initial sanctification, positional sanctification, theologians like to call it, they also had regeneration, but they did not have the receiving of the Holy Spirit for the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit for powerful witness. Adam Clark says that the receiving of the Holy Spirit was for miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Quote from Adam Clark. He's not a Pentecostal, by the way. Quote, it was the miraculous gifts of the Spirit which were thus communicated, the speaking with different tongues and those extraordinary qualifications which were necessary for the successful preaching of the gospel. And so we leave this section here in verse 17 with a beautiful spectacle, the Jews and the Samaritans praying together, those ancient enemies, baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized in water, believing in Jesus, having seen a whole bunch of miracles. And we'll take up with the sad story of Simon in our next audio. I hope you listen to that one and I hope you enjoyed this one.